0: All right, guys, welcome once again to the Salt City Church podcast. And I want to give a special shout out to my neighbor, Tricia. So I almost wasn't able to make it here today because my wife and I got our wires crossed. And so my wife was running our daughter, Emma, to the dentist. And so our neighbor, Tricia, is watching four of our kids right now. So thanks to Tricia. But I'm here on a digital road trip again in Rhonda, the Honda, my 2004 Honda Odyssey minivan. Mm-hmm. And I've got a guy that I've known for a while, Sam Choi, on, and a guy that I've known for just a couple weeks, Kenny Ortiz. And Sam is a pastor at All People's Church in South Minneapolis. And Kenny is a pastor. Can I call you a pastor, Kenny?
1: Technically, pastoral resident.
0: Pastoral resident. He said to me, This is probably why I invited him, at least partly, on the podcast, because he said, he basically keeps the Instagram account, which I know he does way more than that. <laughs> he's got some some wisdom to share with us, uh, but he's at City's Church mm-hmm. just off Summit Avenue in St. Paul. So welcome, guys. Thanks for jumping in with me today.
2: Glad to be I'm here. Glad.
0: Yeah, so good to be here with you. Yeah, so can you, um, guys, just by way of introduction, share how you came to know Jesus? <laughs> Kenny, why don't you jump in? Yeah. Start off, man. Give us the... <clears throat>
1: The, you know, minute and virgin. Uh, neither of my parents were believers when I was growing up. Um, In fact, my dad was an excommunicated Jehovah's Witness. um, And my mom was, uh, by her admission, a backslidden Pentecostal. Um, but bo- both were relatively hostile toward religious ideology uh, because of their backgrounds. So I grew up, I mean, I knew nothing about the gospel. I, I knew Jesus. I knew Christmas was his birthday. I knew that was his Jesus' birthday. That's about what I knew. Um, and my, but my best friend in middle school, Jim Roach invited me to church. He told me there were a lot of pretty girls at church and I should come. So I figured I like pretty girls. I go to church and that's really where I heard the gospel for the first time. Came to faith in Christ at 14 as a high school student, was a part of a great church in the Philadelphia area all through high school. Um, and that really just, you know, obviously has shaped and and changed the entire trajectory of my life.
0: Yeah. What was that church called that you were a part of?
1: Christian life center. Okay. Philadelphia suburbs.
0: Nice, nice. Thanks, Kenny. How about you, Sam? How'd you come to know Jesus? Wow, that was really
2: concise, Kenny. That's super (laughs) impressive. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so I grew up in uh, Georgia, and to two parents who um, had a relationship with the Lord, but it was very religious. So um, church was multiple times a week, and my parents led worship and stuff, and I wake up to that in the morning, and yet there was uh, this piety, yet deep hypocrisy, so I grew up with this kind of um, kind of division where I could go to church and um, I knew the Bible stories, I knew when to raise my hands, and I knew how to look the part, but I could do whatever I want out of church uh, because I saw that um, in my parents, but mainly in my father. Uh, praise God, he's been redeemed in many ways since then, but uh, I grew up with this kind of in the world uh, and in the church, and I, I was just a little bit better than my friends, Enough to be able to judge them all and know that I'm better than them. And then um, at 15, I just had this powerful encounter with Jesus, and I realized he's the one I was searching for. He's the one that I exist for. And from there, it was just kind of a, a switch, just night and day. Um, I, I, I just said this prayer that only a 15-year-old would pray. I don't recommend this, but I was like, Lord Jesus, I'm going to either serve you harder than anyone else in the world or not at all. You know, like, no more riding the fence, you know. And because uh, I knew I was uh, deep inside, I knew I was off. And, and then in that moment, God moved in me such a way that I, I literally felt this huge burden coming off of me, like Pilgrim's Progress. I didn't even know it was there. And I felt like a physical release where I could breathe like deeply mm-hmm. for the first time. I was like, oh my gosh, I can breathe. Like, I didn't even know I was restricted. And and I felt like colors were brighter. There was just this transformation and yeah. this hopefulness. And I remember having this thought of like, oh, so this is what it means to live. So this is what it's like to live. And, um, and it, just from there, I just... I was uh, 17, 18 years ago or something like that. And um he is, he's just continually been transforming me, continually saving me and uh, I've never looked back. And so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: thanks for sharing guys. So how specifically, so growing up in Philadelphia, growing up in Georgia, how did um, growing up as a minority in America look for you guys? So Kenny, you're Hispanic, Sam, obviously Asian. What was that like growing up in the church and outside of the church? Just what was your experience like growing up as a minority?
1: I, I don't know that I ever realized that my experience was different than anyone else. I guess I I, I think a lot of kids probably feel that way. Uh, I don't I don't feel different, and it's it's not really been until until my real until my thirties that I'm looking back and realizing that. So I think at the time. I don't think I realized being Hispanic put me in a different space than maybe other people. It's it's now looking back on it that I'm I'm realizing that. Hmm. I had a very I think a very diverse. I, I just happened to grow up in a part of Philadelphia, North Philly, that's very diverse. Most most of Philly is very segregated, as as a lot of cities are. Um, I've been told Philly is slightly worse than the average. I, I don't know if that's true or not. But there there's a neighborhood in Philly that's predominantly black, uh, northern northwest part of Philly. And then there's like the Eastern half of North Philly. That's like predominantly Hispanic. And then like lower Northeast Philly is predominantly like lower income uh, white. And so I, I happen to have grown up in a section of the area, like section of the city. That's like right at the, like the kind of the, the trifecta where all those three areas meet. So I just, I went to high school and middle school and and, you know, and before that uh, with, I mean, a, a really an equal percentage of every race. Uh, and so I would I, I thank God for that, because I think I was able to really notice differences between races and culture and even notice some nuances between races that maybe I think a lot of high school students would have never had the opportunity to be exposed to or, or notice.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Do you do you feel like Kenny that you ever experienced racism?
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I think I would have, I would have said no to that question for a long time. Cause I don't, at least I don't think so. But as I've looked back on some experiences, I've, I've started to wonder, I wonder if that was being, if that was, could be defined as racism. I, you know, people make fun of, you smell like beans. Uh, you know, my friends would say that, but we would like, we would crack jokes. Cause I was, a, you, know, m- you know, my high school friends, we were in different you know, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, we'd make jokes at each other regularly. And so some of the same guys would make jokes at me and I'd make jokes at them. And, and so it it didn't feel racist. It felt kind of just witty banter. But I look back on a, some of those moments and I I think there was probably some more disdain with in some people's hearts than I think I originally realized.
0: Mm, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, how about you, Sam?
2: So when I was four, we moved to Georgia from California and we moved into a suburb called, Mar- uh, a city called Marietta, Georgia. I, I if I'm... I think I was one of maybe two Asians in the entire elementary school. Maybe. Mm. Um, and the other one was just a mix as a mixed girl. And so my interactions early on in my formative year years with almost anybody who was not Asian, <clears throat> which was almost everybody, was a very quick recognition that I was different from them. A comment about where I'm from, my eyes, um, some sort of joke, or just even if they were kind, there were just they, there was some a clear distinction that I was there. So early on, I desperately wanted to be white and accepted as white. Was attracted to all things that was majority culture because that's the way I could survive, right? And you're you're a six year old, a five year old. You I mean you're gonna just want to just do whatever you can to fit in. Um, my neighborhood I lived in was a little more diverse, um, but it was mainly still majority culture. Uh, that was the case in middle school and high school. It, each step I grew, um, it, it had a little bit more diversity. In middle school is when where we even had people um, called FOPs, like fresh off the boat Asians who came in. Um, they they just barely spoke English. And I remember distinctly that there was these moments where they would make eye contact with me, and they were it looked like they were relieved that I was there. Oh, like an ally. I'm not alone. And yet I try to make very clear with them, I'm not who you think I am. I'm not one of you. Because if I, if I joined them, I would be part of that group. And I still wanted to be in the in-group. And so I distanced myself with all things Korean. So my parents went to a Korean, we, we went to a Korean church, and you know I, I was just normal when I was there. But when I was out of there, I just wanted to distance myself as much as possible to survive. And, um, and then in high school, it was the same thing, a little bit more diversity, Um, But, man, so many interactions with people um, based off race, um, you know, mockery, um, different comments that deeply scarred me as a young kid. Um, You know, it's hard to distinguish what was racist versus what was just, you know, juvenile cruelty that kids are cruel. Right. Um, But a lot of the cruelty was directly based on on race or my ethnicity. Um, So that was very, very troubling and hard for me uh, up through high school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially Mm -hmm. as a basketball player, because I started playing basketball in seventh grade and that became my life. And so anytime I enter, walk onto any court, I immediately, there's comments made about me being the minority guy coming onto the court, you know, and so maybe the majority would be black in that situation or, or white, but I'm always going to be the odd man out in that sport. And so I I felt that very intensely uh, in that sport but you let your game do the talking we played basketball together sam <laughs> There you go you
0: you can ball it up man there
2: you, you go you got some yeah. skills it's a chip yeah. on my shoulder I i gotta earn. i gotta prove it so <laughs> some of it is is just godly competition and some of it is a, a pride that i want to show them what's up but uh you know totally. yeah but for for whatever reason maybe in the last 10 years it's it's gone down I, people still make comments right when i come in but they're more they're usually not always, but usually more in a positive. I mean, Jeremy Lin comparisons, obviously, um, but um, but nothing as as vicious as it was when I was in high school, middle school. Mm-hmm.
0: Kenny, would you mind sharing the story? You know, we met in uh, Seth Martin's backyard a couple of weeks ago. We had a conversation about George Floyd and race, which I want to get into some of that. But I was really helped by your story about the salsa music. Mm. And just your perspective on that. Do you mind just sharing that sure. and kind of the difference in perspective between you and your brother? Right. And then just want to have a, a little conversation about that. You mind sharing that story?
1: Yeah. So I was, uh, uh, I think a senior in high school, I was going for my driver's test, And, uh, when I, when I pulled in the, you know, the, the, the guy who gets in the vehicle to, to drive with you was taking me to parallel park. And as I was, as I was parking, um, I had, had the music on and apparently it was too loud. And again, thinking back on it, what why would you have music on during your driving test? It doesn't it's sort of a logical. But anyway, for, for whatever reason I had, it, and apparently it was louder than it should have been. And he he clearly was annoyed. And he was a, he was a little bit rude, actually maybe more than a little bit. And he kind of just said, well, you know, can you turn that music down? And he rolls his eyes. okay. So then I I parallel park and I do the thing. We we finish the test. And he he was clearly annoyed with me. Um the entire time and I and I, and I don't and I just in the moment I just chalked it up I don't know he's just in a bad mood and I don't know people get grumpy whatever who cares if he wants to be a dope whatever what do I care like that was kind of my thought as a 17 year old and then I remember I was recounting that to my older brother you know this probably six weeks later he and I were just it just happened to come up in conversation and he said oh that guy was racist I said like, what what he was like what, what kind of music was it was playing I was like oh it was Jerry Vivera, who was a popular salsa uh, artist in the 90s and he said um, yeah man he goes it was it was it, he was racist he could, the, the reason why he was mad at you is because he was because it was spanish music and I, it it shocked me to for them to say that and I, I jokingly said when we were together last week you know a couple weeks ago you know maybe if I was white and it was in sync maybe that would have um, maybe he wouldn't have gotten angry
2: maybe he would have danced with you
1: or something <laughs> yeah <laughs> but it it, it, it was the thing that struck, stuck out to me as you know as a 17, 18 year old, is that my brother assumed immediately with with incredible confidence yeah. that it the only plausible reason that he was upset with me is because I was a Hispanic, Latino young man listening to Spanish speaking music. And that literally, if my brother hadn't mentioned it, I would have it would have never crossed my mind. Uh, my assumption is that like, guy was just a jerk. And I feel bad for him and he's going to have to deal with that all of his life. And I feel bad for his wife and kids. Like he's a jerk. That's, that was my thought process. Um, And it, and I think as I've walked through my adult life, I think in my, from my perspective and my, my, you know, experiences, most or a lot of minorities are more likely to jump to what my brother jumped to. Mm -hmm. And very few white people are ever jumping there. And it's quite the opposite. White people, most, in my experience, most white people, are very hesitant to jump to that conclusion. Um, And I I thought that's been instructive and helpful for me.
0: Yeah, yeah, one of the reflections that I had too was just there's a personality dynamic in that as well. And maybe you just, you strike me as a very uh, confident, comfortable in your own skin type of guy and i wonder if there's like a temperament thing going on there where you're just reading the situation a little bit differently would you say that that's true or a good read on it
1: uh maybe um i'm uh, i'm glad I, I i come across as confident cuz i don't always feel that way <laughs> but uh i know i it's definitely possible i don't i don't know that i've done enough digging to be honest to answer that intelligently but i i think it's definitely possible that that's that plays a role in a lot of people's perspectives in these moments
0: yeah yeah how do you guys, are you processing, and I heard some of these things, but you know, we, it's even been a couple more weeks uh, since we had the conversation about race, a couple more weeks since the killing of George Floyd, but in your ministries and just conversations with friends and things like that, what do you find yourself talking about related to that violent act of injustice that was
2: done in our city? You know, for us at our church, we're not talking as much about George Floyd at this moment because, you know, it's definitely expanded to be part of the larger conversation that's been had for a long time now. Right. George Floyd is is more like the boiling point, which Mm -hmm. feels very unique and different from Philando Castile or all the other ones. Right. Um, And probably helps helps. That's the bad word. But. Uh, you know, just kind of building it with Brianna Taylor and Amad Aubrey, and then, or Amad Aubrey Brianna Taylor, and then boom. So just kind of just boiling point. So now we're just really thinking, okay, how do we faithfully shepherd, lead, and think? You know, just today's the twenty-fifth. So looking at Psalm twenty-five, and you know, the psalmist is praying, like, "Teach me Your way, O Lord. Like, what is Your way? What is what is Your truth? What is Your path?" And so God has a path and a way and a truth. And it seems like right now in our culture, um, every you know, one side, they're completely right. And then the other side's completely wrong. And the other side saying the same thing, right? There's all the, mm-hmm. there, there's sideism going on right now. Right. And it, it's deeply troubling. And it's like, really, is there really nothing, you know, really? And then other people are saying, is it really always racism? You know, like, it, it just seems like a lot of talking past each other and a lot of absolutes and a lot of confidence. So, you know, myself and, and the elders at all people's church, we've just been diving into conversations, listening, um, you know, podcasting, reading I got a, a stupid stack of books I've been going through. Um I've been kind of steadily reading and learning since Felino Castile, you know, that being so close to us. And um and so just trying to really get God's heart around it and not get swept up. You know, that's one of the things I don't know if this is even answering the question at this point, but one of the things I'm I'm I really am trying to guard is getting swept up with with um just the emotion of the moment and feeling like I have to know everything and I have to say everything right now or I'm a coward or, you know. Um, just feeling like busyness is is doing something, but really trying to sit and say, God, what's your heart? You know, I, I think so often we jump to these articles and listen to these books or podcasts or interviews and we don't actually ask, like, what do you think about this? You know, like, what's your heart? So I've been really trying to, you know, in the very beginning, I was just kind of like in this, like this triage mode where I'm just like, you know, every day like i'm going to lake street i'm recording i'm trying to help my people think through things i'm reading tons of articles and trying to digest it all and 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 make it palatable for my people and then and i realized i really wasn't praying a lot like really sitting with the lord and saying god what's what's your heart what do you think so that's kind of where it's evolved now that it's been i don't know what two and a half three weeks since the 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 apex of the riots in twins in the twin cities the protests um so just really wrestling through that, and and also a big thing is just really thinking through, you know, what, you know, such a such a time as this, right? The Lord has us here for a unique time, and really trying to think with my leadership team and my wife. You know, it's it is kind of scary, in Minneapolis, right? Crime is 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 skyrocketing right now. People are getting shot and killed, and there's just an overall sense of. Uh, lawlessness in and in a jaded conscience and the police are kind of paralyzed and that, that's a whole nother conversation. I don't know if you want to get into that, but you know, we're we're trying to be boots on the ground and, and we're hearing about lots of tragic things and really trying to ask God, you know, what, what are you setting up here? You know, what kind of movement do you want to do in the hearts of the Minnesotans and, and um for this? So that's kind of rambling, but those are kind of a lot of different places that we're thinking through and wrestling through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks, Sam. Yeah.
1: At our church, we're probably having a lot of similar conversations. Sam just said amongst our elder teams. I think the two prominent things we're trying to uh, that the that our elders are trying to bring to um, to our congregation is really like the idea like that, that Jesus at the cross, like he paid the price for the wall of hostility between ethnicities to be broken down. Like Ephesians two, that that there would be two men, but that there's one new man. Yeah. that that gospel concept um that, that theological concept that i think that, i think we know i think a lot of us know it right um or but it doesn't does, does that really inform how we view and so when i'm walking through cub foods or i'm walking through walgreens and if i see uh a person that looks like they're of swedish descent or if i look at like a person that's of african descent i can look at them and say they're in in the world's eyes there would be a natural reason for there to be a wall of hostility between us there, there's a there seems to be, from the worldly perspective, a reason for us to not trust each other or not want to commune with one another. But if you're a Christian, I have way more in common with you than I do with my, my Puerto Rican brethren. That's right. Uh, uh, one of our elders, David Mathis, he, he said, I have 10,000 times, 10, times more things in common with a believer of a different race than an unbeliever of the same race. I, I think getting people to view that I'm a Christian first. Yeah. I am Puerto Rican, maybe second, third, fourth, like, like down the list. And that doesn't mean there's no value in identity. Right. And there's no means that doesn't mean that you shouldn't identify as that, or that that's wrong to identify in that way. Yeah. We're just trying to tell Christians, like, just remember, like your primary identity is follower of Christ. like That's right. Justified believer. Like that's the primary. And that really should inform all your conversations. Um That. And I think the second conversation that's come up quite a bit, the second thing we're talking about, specifically uniquely American, is just understanding that the history. Um, and, and I think particularly with a lot of a lot of my white friends having this conversation of like, yes, like 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 the laws that were on the books that were overtly racist, they are gone because that's what a lot of times black people will say, hey, I feel oppressed, and a lot I, my white friends will say, well, racism has been outlawed, you know, civil rights movement, slavery's been gone, you know. Redlining was outlined in 1975. And that's 100 percent true. But like helping people see like the residual effects of redlining, like the overt practices of redlining, really existed until like in well into the 80s and early 90s. And there's there's a residual impact. Like, yes, redlining is outlawed, but if you look at a map, it just so happens that you can see this neighborhood was redlined, it's mostly black, and home ownership is really low. This neighborhood is mostly white, home ownership is really high. That's like, right. So, like helping people see, you're right. Technically speaking, a black person has every opportunity a white person has in our country. If that's, it. but there's a residual impact that has to be acknowledged in these conversations. That's
0: hmm. good. Yeah, that's good. One of my friends um, from Iowa named Mark Garrett, who I worked with at Veritas Church in Iowa City, said to me a few weeks ago, This really has stuck with me that he felt like the prophetic word for the church today was actually pretty simple, like love one another, you know, or, um, and, and that's something I've been thinking about a lot and been find myself talking about in individual conversations and also in addressing our church is just that we can fight injustice and we can Call evil evil, but if we do those things without love, then we're nothing. You know, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Yeah, and I love. I mean, what you both had to say. I mean, just about listening, informing ourselves, but also Ephesians too. Man, I, I found. I don't know if you guys have found this too, but but COVID and then kind of COVID sliding into this injustice in our city that's captured the attention of the whole world has led me to some just, I think, good introspection, repentance. Have you guys found the same thing? And and if so, what what's God doing in you in terms of just your own walk with him, relationship with him? What, what kind of things is he revealing and and showing you and uh, mm. calling you to
2: kind of in this season. This passage that we believe was like a prophetic word for our church is Psalm 23. Um, and there's that one line where he says, he makes me lie down in green pastures and being a young church plant, we just celebrated two years and me being kind of um activator, doer, accomplisher kind of person, Um, I think our church often um, negatively takes that kind of angst that I have. That's just kind of how God has wired me, which is one of my strengths and my weaknesses is a, a, a very allergic, allergic ability to rest and just be, just be and abide. And I think COVID forced us to slow down and lower our activity and increase our intimacy and just make sure that our inputs are outweighing our outputs. And so it's been a season of slowing down, which was so interesting because we had no idea George Floyd would be murdered and we had no idea all this stuff would happen. And so it's kind of very, very um, providential. God leading us through a season of just slowing down, lowering our, you know, we're a high output church. Every member sees each other three times minimum, usually four to five times. Like We're a very high, high, high touch kind of intentional church. And in doing that, you can be so busy doing for the Lord, you can't be with the Lord anymore. And it, it, he took us through a couple of months where we just kind of slowed down. People were, were just resting more and without guilt. And we try to just remind people the gospel. And it's interesting how the Lord kind of set our hearts ready to where now our capacity got to increase during that season. And then we are, we are now more ready to be the hands and feet of Christ and to show the gospel and to, to be what we need to be for our city. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of really cool how the Lord used this all. I
0: love that one of my uh, other kind of mentor pastor friends has been talking a lot about Psalm 23 too. And I just find it interesting how it's often how God uses the most familiar passages. (laughs) You're kind of like, Oh wait, I never saw that before. But what a great word. Yeah. I feel similarly Sam for sure. How about, how about for you, Kenny? To me, the biggest thing is, um,
1: and it's kind of similar to what Sam was saying. I, I went through a season where I felt like uh, I'm now, I'm like, oh, this, this is perfect for the season I'm in. Like, wow, God providentially led me through a season in the fall where I was studying lament, just the idea mm. of lamenting. I, I, I was reading through some of just the laments of the, of the, of the, of the, through the Psalms in the Old Testament, uh, read two books on lament in 2019 um, that were helpful. And I don't think I, I think I cognitively understood it, but I, it didn't really hit and it, mm. until until I watched really the video of George Floyd in the, the, that eight minutes and 46 seconds and I, I started I started tearing up and crying I was just heartbroken mm. and like like the the social injustice stuff aside I was I was thinking for a moment not that it's not important but I was from my, in my mind it was like this is a human being made in the image mm. of God and and he's dead and his family now has lost a son uh, you know a brother a, you know a, a friend you know father like, a father, right? Like, yeah. Like that's that's a tragedy. We should yeah. lament. Um, and I, and I cried, and and then I cried. And mm. it, it, it's it's at the hands of the person, the law enforcement. Like they're the ones that uphold justice. Injustice is now done by the person, by the system that's called to uphold justice. That's yeah. that should I should look. That should make me sad. That should break my heart. Yeah. Um, and I think I don't as a Christian for more than 20 years, I don't know that I really understood lament well. Yeah. And the idea of like, just, this is, I should feel somber. I should sit and just go, oh, this this stinks. Um, this should And this should break my heart. And it has ushered me into a different type of intimacy with the Lord. So a couple of my prayer times the last few weeks have just been, just they've been really sweet. Uh, they've been much more somber um, in some ways. And it's just unique. I feel like I've got a, I feel like I'm just communing with Jesus in a different way
0: mm.
1: and I'm praying differently. Um, yes, I'm praying good. for people of color differently than I did before. Mm. I'm lamenting, you know, we, uh, a friend of mine who's a black pastor said, I, I'm afraid of, of doing certain things because I'm afraid of what, how people may view me. And I'm like, that, that should make me sad. Um, yeah. Another black friend of mine said he went out and took out a large life insurance policy, a million dollar mm. life insurance policy. And he's like, because he was—he's—he's like, he's, he's like I'm, a, I'm a 30-some black black man living in Minneapolis. I'm—they're—they're going to view me as a as a, a piece of dirt and are going to kill me. my wife's going—my wife and kids are going to be alone. Wow. I got to make sure they have money. And I'm just like, dude, that—that that broke my heart. And I, I don't know that six months ago it would have. I think six months ago I would have said, "Come on, man, this—are you really that much? You know, come on, you know." I, I would have pushed back and I would have yeah. used statistics and rationale to try to convince him that he's not what he's feeling is off. And what I'm doing today mm. is just sitting and going, dude, it stinks that a human being, an image bearer of God, feels like he's got to take out a million dollar insurance policy because he never knows what day might be his last because he's black. Yeah. That's a sad thing that should break our hearts and should inspire us to pray.
2: That's right. That's right. Mm. I'd, love to, I'd mm. love to jump on that real quick. Kenny, you just reminded me something is, you know, right before um, the, the ri- uh, everything that happened, um, I went on vacation and I was about to burn out. And I noticed that right before a vacation, I got to the place where I had counselor's fatigue. You know, I, I couldn't feel anymore. So someone would confess mm-hmm. into me or I'd hear something and I would just kind of be like, okay, yeah, yeah. Like I've heard that before. And like my heart was just desensitized. And I, I had that vacation. That was the best vacation I've ever had in my life. It was, it was eight days. And uh, when I got back, I noticed a tenderness in my heart mm-hmm. and I'm crying again, like I'm crying more. And when I watch the video, I cry. When I hear these stories, I cry. And I'm able to enter into pain at levels that I couldn't for the last year or so, you know, and it's just, uh, it's a sweet gift that the Lord tenderized my heart so I can enter in lament with people corporately and, and grieve with them and, and really live out Romans 12, like weep with those who weep. I can actually do that now instead of just say that it's in the Bible and it's important, you know, yeah. so. Mm, you know. That's good.
0: I had a really powerful interaction with a a pastor in in South Minneapolis kind of in that area. And he basically, he said, I just met, met him for lunch for the first time. And he just looked at me and said that he could see the weeds of slavery coming up and choking out the lives of people in his neighborhood and in his congregation, young black men every day. And he just started weeping. And and I just sat across the the table from him too and just just cried with him, you know, and man, that it's just that, that paradox of living in the gospel, like blessed are those who mourn, you know, to actually enter in, not be defensive and, um, just listen to each other. It's so good. So yeah. Thanks so much for being on today, guys. Uh, Sam, you mind closing us out in prayer, man? Yeah. And, uh, Yeah, to be continued on this conversation, guys.
2: Father of all comfort, we ask that you would comfort your hurting people, your grieving people, your confused and despairing people. Help us have hope in you, knowing that you're going to make all things new. And Lord, give us wisdom on how you want to make things new through us today. How can your kingdom come today in our churches, in our cities, in our nation? Lord, would you be merciful to our nation? Though so wayward and idolatrous and proud and wicked in so many ways, would you be merciful and pour out revival upon our nation? Turn our hearts back to you wake us up to know that every one of these social issues find solution in you ultimately you're the one who will bring ultimate peace and unity between all ethnicities you're the one who will bring complete peace where no one will ever die lord you're the answer and yet so much so many In our nation right now are putting their hopes in different social programs or different organizations and movements and and they have their part to play Lord use them but Lord don't let us put our hope in princes and chariots that will ultimately fall apart we ask that you would lead us Lord lead our churches lead the pastors the Twin Cities and beyond Lord to lead courageously humbly faithfully Right behind you, following you, Lord. We don't want to follow the world and culture's ideas or get caught up in trying to be woke enough or to be um, on the right side of history or, or um, pleasing to the, the Twitter mob. But, Lord, we want to be caught up with just a passion for your name and about your business and following you carefully, Lord, no matter what the cost. So I pray for fresh courage for all the leaders who will listen to this podcast. I pray for uh, that, that you would help our hearts be calibrated to be all about your agenda and about pleasing you first and foremost and about the glory of your name and the good of people. So, Lord, lead us for your glory and thank you for this conversation. Lord, if there's anything that we said that wasn't helpful, let no one hear it. But anything that was true and pleasing and good, Lord, let that be helpful. And one more degree of transformation that we desperately need. Thank you, Lord, for hearing this prayer. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.
0: Yeah, guys, thanks so much for jumping in. And all you listeners, thanks for jumping in too. And I hope you're encouraged to continue to walk in grace and truth and just have these conversations with brothers and sisters in Christ that will encourage each other to be shine as lights in this crooked and twisted generation. So yeah, thanks for jumping in. Appreciate Thank it. You. It's be